Unitarian Universalists may not have saints, but we do have some famous names, famous members whose names we have been known to drop. A search online will bring up recent names like actors Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward, and Christopher Reeve, writers Rod Serling, Ray Bradbury, and Kurt Vonnegut, musicians Pete Seeger, Holly Near, and Cher, and architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Go further back in time when Unitarians and Universalists were two separate faiths, and we have the Unitarian presidents Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, and William Howard Taft, authors Louisa May Alcott and Ralph Waldo Emerson, and that midnight writer Paul Revere, as well as Universalists Clara Barton, Horace Greeley, and George Pullman. We are excited this morning to welcome some prominent figures from the past that we have claimed, rightly or wrongly, as you use. We've asked them here to speak to us about the lives they lived and the beliefs that guided them as a way to both honor them and educate ourselves. This living UU history is being presented by a willing group of volunteers who will be bringing these legends briefly to life. The words come from the book Credo, Latin for I believe, which is a collection of imagined statements of belief from 37 historic Unitarians and Universalists. The copyright page in the book reads, all rights reserved, but the book says in capital letters, no rights reserved, believing that knowledge and information belong to the entire human family, you are authorized to reproduce the contents of this book in any form or means of your choosing with no further permission from the author. How you you. Uh, now I have three um, willing victims, uh, volunteers. <laughs> I have Pam Cook, Bill Hart, and Beth Wugan. Would any one of you want to be first? Okay, all right. Mr. Hart will introduce himself as his UU counterpart. Good morning. I am Ed Lee Stevenson. My parental grandfather, the original Ed Lee I. E. Wing Stevenson, who served as vice president during Grover Cleveland's second term, was a Democrat and a Presbyterian. My maternal grandfather, W.O. Davis, was a Republican and a Unitarian. Being born a politician, I found my policies in the Stevenson side of the family and my religion on the Davis side. I became a Democrat and a Unitarian, thus keeping both sides of the family somewhat satisfied. I remember with fondness the old Unitarian church in Bloomington, Illinois, which I attended faithfully as a boy and I'm sure that the Sunday School Superintendent, Mr. Pierce, has not gotten over yet, nor his shock and surprise, who I became after leaving his tutorage. I will recount for you this morning my political career, or my two unsuccessful campaigns for the presidency. Even now, it still hurts too much to laugh. I will do with your permission and his repeat some of the things that I said and delivered at the first A. Powell Davis lecture at the Constitutional Hall in Washington, D.C. in 1959. Davis was a longtime prophet, minister, 
of all saints, all souls, Unitarian Church in the nation's capital. And their dear friend, he was a dear friend of mine for many years. The central theme of his preaching was that the world is too dangerous for anything but truth and too small for anything but brotherhood. I took this as a starting point for my lecture, <clears throat> which in reality became my credo. We Americans have been stifled with complicit self-confidence. We have believed our humanity to be dominated in every field. We have boasted of the American century. We have forgotten the odors and efforts that have given us a measure of predominance. The trouble is we have confused the free with the free and easy. The condition of freedom is not only a rare today, it has always been rare. But make no mistake about this. The natural government of man is servitude. Tyranny is the normal pattern. It is only by intense thought, by great effort, by burning idealism and unlimited sacrifice that freedom has prevailed as a system of government. And the efforts which were first necessary to create it are fully as necessary to sustain it today. He who offers this thing will call freedom as a, an opinion or as an option. It is a deceiver of himself deceived. He who sells it cheap or offers it as a byproduct of this or that economic system is naive or a fool. For freedom demands infinitely more care than any other political system. It puts constant and personal initiative in place of command and obedience. Thus, relying on the devotion of ordinary citizens, it gives up the harsh but effective principles that underpin, underpins all tyrannies, which over the millennia have stunned and full stature of humankind. I offer three benchmarks to test whether Americans will be capable of regaining the necessary sense of national purpose and the discipline to carry it out. The first is remediable poverty. The affluent society is normal today for a great majority of Americans to a greater or lesser degree, but millions do not share it at all. Poverty can be wiped out but only if the well-to-do majority of today does not repeat the selfish indifference which has been the epithet of yesterday's wealthy. Second is the statue of my citizens of color. If America is to save itself, the civil rights of all citizens must be protected not only by law but by custom. This can never be accomplished unless there are enough white men and women who resist it in the core of their beings and moral envy <clears throat> or treating of any of God's children as essentially inferior. The third of our disproportionate worship ownership of most of the world's wealth is the Atlantic world compromises only 16% of the world's people but controls over 80% of its wealth. The United States accounts for the lion's share of that. To the moral implications of this gap, we cannot be indifferent. It will require moral insights 
of justice and compassion to stir us to an understanding of privileged position which sets us apart from the rest of the world. We're not going to be stirred by our own needs. I'm counting on you to continue talking sense to the American people. Beth? I'm Jenkin Lloyd-Jones. I was born in 1843 in Cardigan County on the west coast of Wales, but was only one year old when our family migrated to America. We settled on a homestead in Wisconsin Territory about 40 miles west of Milwaukee. My parents, Richard and Mary Lloyd-Jones, were Unitarian, a movement which had been established in Wales in 1795. My guess is that they were the only Unitarians uh, on the Wisconsin frontier. In my 19th year, I was drafted into the Union Army. I served for three years, fought in 11 major battles, and received wounds which caused me to limp for the rest of my life. During those years, I kept a daily journal which chronicled the horrors of war and the unspeakable things war does to people, victors and vanquished alike. When the war ended, I was determined to do something worthwhile with my life and took the $100 of my army pay, which I had saved, and enrolled in Meadville Theological School in Pennsylvania to study for the Unitarian ministry. I waited tables, sawed wood, washed windows, and worked as a janitor in the dormitory for my board and room. Also, while in Medbill, I fell in love with Susan Baker, a secretary to one of the professors. We married the day after my graduation and spent our honeymoon at the Western Unitarian Conference in Cleveland. The Western Conference, comprised of Unitarian societies in the Midwest and beyond, was in a mini-revolt against the more conservative New England Unitarians. The Boston-centered group had earlier emerged from the liberal wing of the Congregationalist Church, but now were, willing, now were unwilling to go further. They sought to establish a theological test of belief in a personal God and allegiance to Jesus. Those of us who were called radicals felt the um, imposition of any creedal statement defining terms of membership would be the death of liberal religion in America. We held that ethical principles, not theology, were central in religion. While this controversy raged, I served congregations, first in Winnetka, um, Illinois, and then in Janesville, Wisconsin. In addition to my local pastoral chores, I served as a secretary to the Western Unitarian Conference, founded and edit edited Unity, a liberal publication, and developed a Sunday school curriculum which was based on practical ethical living rather than memorizing uh, Bible verses and singing jingle songs. The more liberal society of the West adopted this curriculum, and for a period of time, the Western Unitarian Conference virtually became a separate denomination from the East Coast, centered 
uh, East Coast-centered American Unitarian Association. The breach, of course, was eventually closed. But you know, as painful as that struggle was for persons on both sides of the divide, I hope that Unitarians never stop experiencing internal conflict. Something essential to the unfettered search for truth would be tragically lost if uniformity of thought ever descended on this movement. (coughs) In 1882, that would have been um, when I was uh, 39, I confided to my wife that I had long hoped to be called to a church in Chicago and was disappointed that no call had ever come. She said that if that were the case, we ought to move to Chicago and start our own congregation. That is exactly what we did. I hired a hall over a store on Cottage Grove Avenue on Chicago's south side and nailed a placard to the door announcing that I would be preaching the following Sunday. Twelve people showed up, nine adults and three children. The second Sunday, there were 33, and on the third Sunday, we doubled to 66. The Church of All Souls was on its way. I spent the rest of my life with that congregation, and it grew to be one of the most active in Chicago. We maintained living quarters upstairs in the church. The guest room was occupied by my nephew, the architect Frank Lloyd Wright, while he was serving his apprenticeship with a local firm. When Chicago began planning for the World Columbian Exposition of 1893, I suggested that in addition to celebrating the great economic and material progress which mankind had made since Columbus had landed in the Western Hemisphere, we ought also to celebrate the religious aspects of our common life. This led to my chairmanship of the World Parliament of the World Parliament of Religions. That parliament brought together representatives of all the world religions. It was the most inclusive religious assembly ever convened. Nothing like it had happened before, and I doubt anything like it has happened since. Most of my remaining life was dedicated to the quest for peace. In 1897, when preparations were underway for war with Spain, I spoke out strongly against American imperialism and suggested that the purchase of Spanish possessions would be far less costly and much more honorable than war. Similarly, I opposed American entry into the World War. So much so, in fact, that my newspaper, Unity, was banned from U.S. mails, a fitting validation of my life. morning. It's an honor to be here in advance of the upcoming Climate Week. I am Norman Cousins. You are turning the tables on me this morning. One of the things I am best remembered for was a series of articles I wrote while editor of the Saturday Review of Literature in which I asked a number of prominent world leaders to relate the major lessons they had learned in life. Asking me to present my credo is in essence the same question except that I now must answer rather than ask and report. I am, as you know, a Unitarian. We Unitarians have many and varied ideas about the existence and or nature of God. 
For me, God stands in fullest glory, not when made stride of, to sit astride infinity or when regarded as an architect of cosmic spectacles, but when contemplated as the ultimate force that prevents the cosmic void from being complete. Whether the great design of creation exists within a microcosm or a macrocosm is unimportant. The vital, vital particles of, have order and purpose and exist. And there is a place inside that order for humanity, for consciousness, for conscience, for love. That is what is important. We are not children of relativity. We are children of God, and we are brothers and sisters, whether we acknowledge that fact or not. Brotherhood exists as a fact. What does not exist is the recognition that, that, is, that this is so. Human brotherhood, sisterhood, solidarity, choose your own terminology, is a biological reality. Unfortunately, it does not yet serve as the basis for our day-to-day action or our working philosophy for our behavior as nations. It is oneness without recognition that defines humanity's imperfect knowledge of itself. The human race may not be tied together politically or philosophically or culturally, but what the world's people do have in common is a finite amount of land, an air envelope that is rapidly filling with filth and poison, and an uneven water supply that is largely unprotected against the infection of sewage and noxious wastes. The human intelligence that created industrial civilization now must make that civilization compatible with man's basic needs. If this cannot be done, the verdict for the human creature is likely to be that of producer of gas, garbage, and poisons, and only secondarily, a creator of fine works, great deeds, and beauty. It was that fundamental belief that has motivated me over the years to be a champion of nuclear controls as chairman of the Citizens Committee for a Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, to lead the effort to bring victims of the bombing of Hiroshima to America for medical treatment, to serve as president of the United World Federalists, to editorialize against cigarette advertising, industrial pollution, and violence in the performing arts. Conservatives thought me a bothersome nag, but I believe that nothing is more powerful than an individual acting out of conscience, thus helping to bring the collective conscience to life. I was accused of being what Oscar Hammerstein called a cockeyed optimist. Indeed, I was. One of the great losses of the last half century is the loss of optimism. The belief in human progress and an approximation of the perfectibility of the individual human used to be, used to be one of the benchmarks of Unitarianism. What has happened to that? Optimism is the key to finding a solution to the social problems which confront us. Just as optimism is the key to stimulating the healing forces in the body to restore or maintain physical health. Optimism supplies the basic energy of civilization. Optimism does not wait on facts. It deals with prospects. Pessimism is a waste of time and energy. Progress begins with the idea that progress is possible. Cynicism begins with the notion that retreat and defeat are inevitable. Many people seem to have grown weary of the struggle for a sane and just society. You must not let that happen to you. Remember, you are living life against a back backdrop of eternity. Immortal immortality is not a distant and shiny phenomenon, 
but a living reality. You live in others. Others have lived in you. So long as any human being lives, you have life. Your passport to immortality, to be valid, must have the stamp of the human community on it. I know what the experts are telling you, that it is time to be realistic, to scale back your aspirations for a world in which justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream, to give up the struggles for others and get what you can for yourself. Well, your challenge for the next half century is to prove the experts wrong. Thank you. Thank you, Bill, Beth, and Pam. I am going to add two more people to our visitors today. The first is Fanny Barrier. That'll be me. Use your imagination. My name is Fanny Barrier, and I am angry, furious, embarrassed, hurt, and disgusted. No matter how talented, educated, and polite I am, my race makes me a second-class citizen. In Washington, D.C., where I am a teacher, I decided to take a painting class, then saw that my art instructor had erected screens to separate me from the white students. Later, I enrolled in a music school in Boston. The principal there told me that I had to leave the school because some of the white students were threatening to quit if they had to go to school with a colored person. I have a lot of gifts. I am a talented painter and pianist, a good teacher and a good friend. I was born in 1855 and grew up in Brockport, New York, a mostly white town where I felt accepted as a social equal. It was only when I set out to do something large or out of the ordinary in my life that I smacked right up against a system that said I am of less value than white people. And it was when I bumped up against this system that I found my greatest gifts and used them to help people whose lives are more difficult than my own. I met and married a young lawyer, becoming Fanny Barrier Williams. We moved to Chicago, where we lived on the South Side, a predominantly colored neighborhood. I made friends with many people, colored and white, who were interested in the arts, in music, and discussions about all sorts of things. I also worked hard to help those in my community, especially colored women who, because of prejudice, were unable to find jobs to help support their families. Because I had so many white friends, I decided to try to persuade some of them to offer a job to skilled colored women. I soon discovered that just because a white person was kind to me as an individual did not mean that they would give colored women a chance to prove themselves as workers. One manager, when I asked him to hire colored women, went on and on about how his parents raised him to believe that slavery was wrong. But when I pressed him to offer those women jobs, he said no, that it would be too disruptive for business. When I told him that his Christian faith called him to do better, he disagreed. During my years in Chicago, I met and became friendly with Jenkin Lloyd-Jones, minister of the Unitarian Church of All Souls. I join who's been with you this morning, I understand. 
Uh, I joined the church and was active in the establishment of the Abraham Lincoln Center, which served those in need regardless of race. In 1893, Chicago was an exciting place. We were going to host a big exposition. As part of the exposition, Reverend Jones organized a world's parliament of religions, a gathering where people from all over the world could learn about each other's religions. I discovered that there were no colored women on the planning team and pushed hard to fix that. Eventually, I was invited, not just to be part of the organizing team, but to speak. There, I gave my famous speech, Religious Duty to the Negro, saying that churches should do a better job of practicing what they were preaching when it came to justice for all people. I said, what can religion further do to advance the condition of the colored people? More religion and less church, less theology and more of human brotherhood, less declamation and more common sense and love for truth. My speech was powerful, and I became famous. Soon I was invited to deliver my message everywhere. I became a paid speaker, and sometimes even combined my speeches with a piano concert. As I said, I am a woman of many gifts and talents, and even though I myself am financially comfortable, I never forget the colored women whose paths are more difficult than mine. All my life, I will fight the racism that keeps colored people from the jobs and educations they need to survive and offer their own talents to the world. I am proud to be counted as a prophetic voice of your Unitarian Universalist ancestors. The last person I'm going to, thank you. The last person I'm going to invite to come with us today um, is a former member of this congregation. Uh, back in 2005-2006, Bill Hart was in charge of a small group ministry that went about gathering biographies of some of our older members at the time, and that was this. One of those members was Annie Small, who wrote the song that I sang during the um, candle lighting, uh, Go Forth, O Forth Society. Um, hello, I am Geert Bowman. I was brought up by my maternal grandparents in Scheidem in the Netherlands, a town located about three miles west of Rotterdam. They were members of a free-thinking Protestant society. Until a couple of years ago, it was associated with the UUA in Boston. I attended Sunday school in my early years and retained good memories of that time. My father, who was with the Merchant Marine, remarried in 1938. I left home in 1943 and did not attend any church until I got married in 1957 to Dorothy Bowman. My wife, who was from a conservative background, wanted to attend church on Sunday mornings. The deal was that we would try various churches, but that I would have the veto power. One morning, we happened to attend the Unitarian Universalist of Germantown near Philadelphia, about 1,000 members at the time. The fact that they had a revolving pulpit, a different speaker every Sunday, was very attractive to us, so we decided to stay. We enrolled our young daughter, Sharon, in the RE program, Religious Education. In 1964, we moved to Yorktown. Soon thereafter, we were visited by two members, George Chameleon and Herman Baptiste, and were invited to their annual picnic held in June on the Chameleon property. The rest is history. In my 20s, I looked a lot and read a lot looking for answers. 
With my engineering science inclinations, I came to read several philosophers, Spinoza among them. I liked his Euclidean approach to the ethics, the title of his major work. Until this day, I feel most closely to his outlook on the big mysteries that confront us. On the basis of my religious history, I dare claim to be a lifelong Unitarian. I am not quite sure how to define myself religiously, either as an agnostic, atheist, non-theist, humanist, or deist, or perhaps as a Christian without doctrines, or a little bit of each. I am a firm believer in the separation of church and state, perhaps the most important legacy left by our founders. Imagine a world where each state would honor this principle. My thanks to Bill and uh, for his team for giving us this gift. I don't have, oh, here it is, goody, goody. <laughs>